this week on the Back Table Podcast. I try to be very defined in terms of like when we're removing tissue laterally and at the middle lobe. So my goal is one, we flat at bladder neck, right? I want to be wider than the ureteral orifices. So that gives you the depth and width, right? But when it comes up top, you're right. There isn't a great way of establishing how much tissue I want to take. But I try to just park the scope, you know, just in front of Vero, look at that area. And I try to create what looks like, like you said, a barrel, right? I want to create a nice open channel. And if I see an area that's dipping down, and remember, it's a 30 degree down lens, that that area is probably more obstructing than we think. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Backtable Urology Podcast, your source for all things urology. You can find all previous episodes of our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and at backtable.com. Now, a quick word from our sponsors. Today's Backtable Podcast is sponsored by Boston Scientific's Urology Division. Boston Scientific is dedicated to transforming lives through innovative medical solutions that improve the health of patients around the world. This includes treatments, options for benign prostate hyperplasia, or BPH, one of the most prevalent urology conditions facing men today. Greenline Laser Therapy offers a clinically proven alternative to traditional transuretral resection of the prostate. With comparable, durable outcomes, Greenline Laser Therapy can also provide additional potential benefits such as reduced bleeding and shorter hospitalization with an ability to treat various prostate anatomies. Greenline Laser Therapy is an effective prostate treatment option that has been proven to have few complications, a low reintervention rate, and reduce lower urinary tract symptoms up to 15 years. This therapy is aimed to transform the way prostate treatment is approached and can deliver optimal outcomes and improving patients' overall quality of life. Now, back to the show. The Jose Silva is your host this week. I'm happy to introduce our guest, Bilal Choktai. Dr. Choktai did his urology training at Albany Medical School, followed by a fellowship in female urology, neurology, and voiding dysfunction at Will Cornell Medical Center and Memorial Cell Kentering Cancer Center. He's currently Associate Professor of Urology and Associate Professor of Urology in Obstetrics and Gynecology at Will Cornell Medicine. He's also Associate Attending at, of Urology at New York Presbyterian Hospital. He specializes in voiding dysfunction for both men and women. Bilal, welcome to Backtable. Thank you for having me. Today we're going to talk about BPH and, and specifically about green light laser for patients. How big of, of your practice is BPH? It makes up about half my practice. Okay, cool. And how do you work up those patients? So let's say a patient goes into your office, just has some dysfunctional symptoms. What's next? So when patients present, they present obviously in a variety of ways. But usually it's men that present and usually present with things like their most bothersome symptoms. It could be urgency, it could be frequency, it could be nocturia, it could be slow stream, incomplete emptying. Obviously, in extreme cases, you have men who present with urinary retention. With most of the men, the first goal is what is bothering you and what is your goal that you're looking for? There's some men who are simply looking for reassurance. They're concerned they have prostate cancer. And I'm there to sort of do the screening, reassure them that this is a normal part of aging. There's other men who have significant symptoms and are looking for intervention. Some patients are looking for pills. Some patients are looking for a minimally invasive way to treat their symptoms. So the first thing I'm trying to do is elicit a good history and physical, just like we've always been taught since medical school. Following that, I really tell the patient that, you know, my goal here is that I'm here to guide you. 
and I'm here to guide you so we make the right decision. And there's no right answer. We just have to figure out what the risk benefits are and what's right for you. For most patients where we're opting towards a surgical intervention, whether it's office-based or, sur- or in the OR, those patients are getting, at the very least, a cystoscopy, a transrectal ultrasound, and some form of uroflometry, urocuff, or urodynamics, depending on what the constellation of symptoms are. If a patient has predominantly irritative symptoms, those patients are routinely getting urodynamics, just to confirm to both the patient and myself that it's truly obstruction that's the underlying cause. Exactly. And prior to that, do you do like a UA symptom score on that initial visit as well? Every patient, every visit. So one of the things that I do is I try to tell patients, like, I know this form is really annoying and it seems really repetitive, but this score gives us, you know, a patient report outcome for us to be the, um, almost like the jumping board or the, um, the starting point of our discussion. So we're going to break down your symptoms basically into like five or six domains. And this score helps us maintain how are you doing in every domain. And on that first visit, so let's say you're going to do the cystoscopy, you send them off, come back uh, to do the cystoscopy or an ultrasound. Do you start any pills if they haven't started any? So we have that discussion. So the first visit, my goal is first figure out what we're treating, right? And also what the patient's goals are. Following that, a lot of patients, if they haven't already been on alpha blockers, I'll tell them about the role of alpha blockers, right? Or 5-ARIs or PD-5 inhibitors. If they have predominantly irritative symptoms, we might even start a beta-3 for some of these men. And at that point, we'll monitor them for a couple of weeks, right? At that point, they come back, fill out another IPSS. We see how they're doing. And obviously, you know, one really important aspect of the IPSS is the quality of life score. So I asked that pa- I asked that question routinely, even though we do IPSS and go, Wait, how do you feel about your symptoms? Like, are you, are you happy with the way things are? And especially for younger men who tend to have progression of symptoms, I tell them, look, you know, there's a good chance things may progress, so just keep that in mind. So if things are bothersome now, they're likely to progress over time, and, and we talk about that. In the past, I will say past year, past years, there's been a trend to be a, a little bit more proactive in terms of bladder preservation. Do, do you talk about that aspect of, hey, we can do what you're waiting, but that bladder might be getting damaged? I mean, is that something that you start a conversation with them? Absolutely. So the thing is, I talked to them about a couple of different aspects of things. One is that there is probably a portion of the bladder that naturally ages, and there's probably a degree of it where obstruction leads to bladder decompensation. I tell patients that the bladder is kind of like the heart. It's a smooth muscle. It's got a given number of contractions, and after a while, it gives out. And if your bladder is working harder, there's a a higher likelihood that it may weaken over time. And we actually did a systematic review looking at what is the impact of delayed intervention. And there's a lot of aspects to it. I mean, there's one that the bladder probably does decompensate. But here's the thing. None of us, I mean, rarely do we get healthier as we get older. And since that's the case, most patients do benefit from a earlier intervention. And I do mention that, saying that, look, alpha blockers will cover the symptoms, but this is a chronic condition with alpha blockers, and you're going to be on this for the rest of your life. And as you get older, the pills just add on, and then the interactions add on even more. Exactly. And I think that's a great conversation, something that I've been adding to talk to my patients about the, the, the bladder decompensation. We always talk about obstruction, obstruction, but we, even the primary physicians, I don't think they talk that much about what happens while you're waiting until you get fully obstructed. And it's something that we as urologists, we need to bring forward and, hey, talk about that bladder preservation part. I would also add on the fact that, like, I mean, we also don't have great data on it. I mean, there's only, like, if you look at the data looking at what happens with delayed intervention, we we actually don't have remarkable data. And, and, I mean, I'm sure you've seen in your practice, as I've seen in mine, there's some men who've got this elevated PVR, right, and they stay like that for a long time. Then you got the other person who's got that elevated PVR, and, you know, next time you see them, 
It's like in the ER for retention. Uh, so, so I guess the, the data that we do have as urologists is the patient that comes already to the office with the Foley and you do a cystoscopy, that bladder doesn't look good. You do the, the UDS and hey, that bladder is not working at all. So what happened? And then the, the, the patient starts asking, hey, what happened to this point? Why wasn't I treated before? I don't know what to tell you. I mean, we're just at this point right now. So I guess that that's the data that we see as a urologist. It's true. I mean, I think from a clinical standpoint, we do see the patient. In, and when these patients present with retention and, of course, you know, the Foley being inserted while they were in retention, exquisitely painful, no one forgets that experience. And they're always like, hey, what can I do to make sure that never happens again, one? And two, how do I make sure none of my friends and family get this? So, so I agree with you. I think from a clinical standpoint, we do have uh, a lot of compelling data that tells us early intervention does better. And in terms of, of uh, specific symptoms, nocturia, what do you tell the patient about that? That is the toughest condition for us to treat. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. I tell them um, up front that it's funny because I just saw like three patients today with isolated nocturia. And they're like, well, give me a pill to fix it. I'm like, well, here's the problem. It's not one pill. It's not one condition. So when it comes to nocturia, I tell patients up front, there's a multitude of causes. It could be related to sleep. It could be related to your kidneys producing too much urine. It could be related to the bladder, you know, having a small functional capacity at nighttime. It could also be related to the prostate with your bladder not emptying. So the first thing we have to do is a bladder diary. And I was like, without this bladder diary, I'm going to have a really hard time figuring out how to help you. How, how compliant are the patients doing the diary? I mean, I think you know the answer to that one. I mean, I really emphasize it. So I tell patients, like probably, I would say 50% do it when I ask them. I would say another 25 to 30%. If I can't get anything, at the very least, I tell them, leave a hat in the toilet, right, which we give them in our practice. And then I tell them, just at least quantify the amount of urine that came out at nighttime. So I can either rule in, rule out nocturnal polyuria. How often do you see primary nocturnal polyuria? I would say it's probably like for patients who come in with nocturia, probably 20% of the time. Okay. So it's definitely prevalent. I think there was a pill at some point that, that would nocturnal or nocturnal, something like that, that. There was the spray, there was the pill, there's a variety of things that have come out. It's just that um, the thing that's hard about it is that hyponatremia is not a small thing. And when you take a look at the other pills that we use, like alpha blockers or, or 5-ARIs, their safety profile is something we're very familiar with. And to use a desmopressant analog is sometimes, it's, it requires a lot more care. And on top of that, it has a lot more interactions than alpha blockers and 5-ARIs do. Exactly. And then, okay, so you work off the patient, the patient already has obstructive symptoms, or let's say obstruction, regardless of the symptoms, you, you find that there's obstruction. You decide for treatment options. We're going to talk about green light specifically, but who is not a candidate for a green light? I would say patients who've had uh, previous radiation. So previous radiation, the patients are usually opt towards not doing a green light, and those are the patients that are still getting TERPs. And usually it's because of the overactivity or? For whatever reason, they seem not to heal as well. There's something about that tissue where the quality of the tissue is not that good to start. And then when you add on a laser energy, which essentially is you know vaporizing that tissue and, and leaving behind some burn tissue, I, I just find like those patients have a more of a difficult healing time. I mean, I haven't, you know, like this is something that it's more anecdotal. I mean, this is what has been told to me. I haven't really done a lot of lasers. I just stick to TERPs for those patients. Yeah, same boat. I mean, I haven't done them. It's just what I was taught during residency. So really no, no, no experience and I don't want to start doing it and, and see what happens afterwards. It's one of those things that kind of makes sense. And I'm kind of like, the TERPs work well for that pop. I mean, nothing really works that well for that population. That's the first thing. 
The second thing is that they don't do great and they don't heal that well from a TERP. So my assumption is that it probably does hold true for lasers. But also keep in mind that that data, uh, when we talk about lasers and radiation, it came out with earlier lower power lasers. It didn't come out with the 180 watt laser. And you know, again, may maybe it is something we should be thinking about. And they say, okay, so you decide you're going to go to the green light. If the patient is young and talks to you about ejaculation, uh, that they want to preserve ejaculation, is green light still an option? It is. So when it comes to ejaculation, one of the things I find helpful is that for a lot of patients, I mean, they're, I do, I wouldn't say encourage, but a lot of them I do say, hey, try an alpha blocker. And one of the biggest reasons why I'm really glad that patients do try alpha blockers is they understand the concept of what ejaculation is. Because for a lot of men, they it's hard to sort of um, say where this came from, but this idea of sexual health versus erectile function versus ejaculatory function has sort of gotten blurred, right? And when you blur all three together, patients come in going, well, I want a therapy where I don't lose erections. And you're like, well, none of the therapies you lose erections except for like the old-fashioned monopolar terps, right? At that point, I try to explain to them like, well, ejaculation is really your ability to have children. And there's some men who are kind of like, I want to ejaculate. You know, I've, it's always been there. I don't want to lose it. And when I was on Flomax, it was really weird, right? And there's other men that are kind of like, doesn't matter. I, I try to have that conversation really tease out the two just so that we, there's no surprises at the end of a, a procedure. And in terms of, of uh, specifically, I mean, do you tell them, hey, there might be a chance that you're going to lose? I mean, if the patient says, there's no way I want to lose ejaculation, do you tell them, Let's do another, let's try something else. Always. So if a patient said, I, I will only tolerate close to 0% risk of ejaculatory dysfunction, those are the patients that are getting Urolift or they're getting I-10s. Okay. So yeah, probably the same. I mean, usually you're younger guys. In, in terms of, of the green light, so that patient goes to, I use kill the patient for the OR. Those patients are getting pre-op antibiotics? Just... So if I try to follow guidelines, make sure everyone gets appropriate antibiotics. And then uh, walk us through... Whilst the patient's already in the OR that you're going to go in, what was the technique? In general, let's say your your bread and butter, green light, well, what you do all, all the time. I mean, yeah, so what I typically do with green light is that, um, you know, we published a manuscript looking at the different techniques that can be done with laser. So one from straight vaporization, looking at incisions, looking at vapor resection, and then looking at enucleation. So I do a hybrid technique between enucleation and vapor resection. So my goal is... Basically, I take the laser, I make a six o'clock incision. Then uh, I take that down to the bladder neck. And I take that usually all the way back to Vero or close to where I want to get to on Vero. Then from there, I do a five o'clock and seven o'clock incision, just lateral to the UOs to define th that middle lobe. And then essentially, I take the laser and go parallel to the bladder neck fibers and remove that tissue and then remove and place that piece right inside the bladder. And I will vaporize some of that piece to make it small enough so I can remove it through the scope. So the goal is to keep the pieces the size of one field of view. Then I repeat the same technique starting at 1 o'clock and 11 o'clock, right? And the goal is to create, again, enucleate that tissue right down to bladder neck fibers and match my incision that I made at the 5 o'clock and 7 o'clock. And then at the end, I take flexible graspers, uh, remove those pieces of tissue, and that's it. So your first incision is at 6 o'clock? Correct. I mean, what I do the, the 5 and 7, I start with the 5 and 7 and they go from there. Do you ever try these five? I mean, started with the five and seven and you changed to the six o'clock or, 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 or you were trained like that? Yeah. So what I find is that I've done five and seven o'clock, but I find that that six o'clock incision does a really good job of relaxing the whole bladder neck. And I find the urethral orifices usually pull far away. And also what happens is that 
your flow increases dramatically inside the prostatic urethra. At that point, like even if you hit a small bleeder, it's like your visualization doesn't change. And once you have that area done, the five and seven o'clock incisions become very well defined. But but I think you know doing five and seven, six o'clock, I think the concept is very similar. And at what power do you use? Do you do the the channel? Usually eighty to hundred watts because. At that point, I'm, I'm a little bit, when I'm doing incisions, you get pretty close to the tissue. And as you know, like the laser fires at 70 degrees forward. So my goal is to make sure that nothing fires into the trigone. So I try to stay a little bit lower power in that area. And then when you go sideways, do you increase the power? I usually do. Usually usually like uh, 100 to 120 watts. And sa same thing when you go at the 11 o'clock and 1 o'clock, 80 to 100? Exactly. 80 to 100 when I'm at the bladder neck. And then I ramp up on power for the rest of it. And then when you're at the apex or, or, or near the burrow, do you do any changes in terms of decreasing the power or anything? Usually when, when it comes to like the portion near the apex of the prostate, I will typically go slightly lower on power because that area does become sometimes, it does bleed a little bit more. So typically I'm at around 100 watts for that area. So usually at less power, you should be able to cauterize better or quality better? It's a good question. I mean, in theory, the way the laser works, it's the amount of penetration of the laser is probably about the same. It's just the speed at which the tissue gets vaporized. So when you do lower power, you're just getting probably a lower, your mix of vaporization coagulations, probably just a little bit better for cauterizing the tissue. So if I see tissue that's friable, I'll typically go down in power too. And for patients that have a big median lobe or big intravesical lobe, do you make any changes? So I try to do the six o'clock incision, especially for those patients, because when you bivalve that median lobe, it makes it a lot easier to address. But sometimes you can't get over that middle lobe without adding significant torque. So for those patients, I'll typically start at five, I'll identify the ureteral orifices and then basically climb up the middle lobe, try to shrink it down so I can get on top of it. Once I can get on top of it, make a six o'clock incision and then similar technique. Can you repeat, how do you shrink it down? Try to shrink it from the, from the sides? Yeah, so basically you go from the sides at 5 and 7 o'clock, point the laser slightly upward to take the top of the middle lobe and trim it down. And sometimes when the medial lobe is very, very big, sometimes it might be a challenge because so, you end up maybe with a like a floating, or sometimes it, it happened to me because I only do the 5 and 7. Sometimes you get like, like, like a floating puff on the, on the bladder or, or in the trigon area, and then it becomes a challenge how to remove it because usually it's, it's pretty, it might be pretty big. And then you're trying to pin it down towards the prostatic region so you can vaporize it there. I guess if you do this, the, the six o'clock technique, you help with that and you don't have to deal with that big meter lobe. Yeah, I mean, I do, I do find it very helpful for that. Or sometimes if I get a piece that floats over the bladder neck, what I will do is take my scope, go over the piece and try to bring, bring it back with the scope. So it's within the prostatic urethra. Then while I'm on top of it, then I'll start vaporizing it. You should higher power to try to shrink it down to one field of view. And then from there, flexible graspers and remove the piece. Remember, we're, we're looking at a three-dimensional image through two dimensions. So sometimes we do misanticipate the size of it. And you're like, oops. No, no, exactly. And you mentioned that flow of water that's very important. I was going to ask you, like, sometimes you have these big kissing lobes that prevent good flow. How, how do you tackle those? So again, when you make those incisions, I find the incisions are really helpful. And then what I'll also do is a lot of times, like, if it's a longer prostate, I might divide the prostate into half or even thirds if I'm doing like, let's say, uh, a very large prostate, 150 grams or more. And I'll do the first third and then repeat the technique two more times to remove the blocking tissue. So therefore, you open the bladder neck 
then you work your way to the middle third and then remove that tissue that's mid-prostate and then get to the apex. And you mentioned more than 150. I mean, how big are, you, are the prostate are you doing or how far it will go? Again, I think larger prostates like that are less common, but the largest prostate I've probably done is probably 250 grams. And the patient's doing good? Took a while, but yeah, the patient's doing well. But I do warn those patients that, you know, you have a higher chance of retreatment because obviously you're doing a larger prostate, bigger blood supply, higher chance of inadequate resection. And in those patients, do you say, hey, we can try this minimal invasive versus going to a, a retroprivic, I mean, or a robotic prostatectomy? Exactly. And a, a lot of men, especially in New York City, really want minimally invasive therapies. They don't want cuts. They don't want incisions. And when I tell them, like, look, there's a chance we may have to go back at some point, they go, okay. I mean, just out of curiosity, I don't, I don't usually those, do, do those big ones. Probably 180 probably will be my, the biggest. How, how long do you take doing them? Uh, I mean, those can take a while. They can take, you know, up to hour and a half, two hours. But those are the patients that will start having conversations about the role of, like, other technologies like aquablation, the role of prostate arterial embolization uh, prior to a procedure. So we, we have a conversation about other techniques to help reduce recurrence and re-intervention. You mentioned the prostate arterial embolization. Uh, uh, do you do a combined approach if, if you're going to use something like that, or you just send them for that and then see what happens? That's usually what I do. So I first send them for a prostate arterial embolization. I tell them, let's see how you do. Let's see how you feel afterwards. If a patient says they feel great, then I just watch them. And if their Qmax improves and their IPS is, you know, has improved by 50%, we, we sit tight. But if there's a patient who still has subsequent symptoms afterwards, those are the patients who will go ahead and laser. And you, have you seen any difference when you laser a, a, a tissue after embolization? It seems about the same, maybe using slightly higher power, but not remarkably different. It, it, it's not like when you do like a redo. Like if you do a redo laser, I find that or redo from a chirp or, you know, like a, a tuna, I find those, that tissue is remarkably different. But I find like for a PAE, it's not that different. So you mentioned the, the redo for terps. Yeah, you, you sh sometimes, I mean, it depends. It's a hit or miss. Sometimes they vaporize very smoothly. Sometimes it takes longer or, or higher power to, to get the results that you want. So in, in terms of, I mean, you mentioned the technique, will you do any approach depending on the anatomy of the patient? I mean, if it's predominantly lateral lobe, I mean, the six o'clock incision becomes maybe superfluous or sometimes even it doesn't really help you. If it's a patient has a middle lobe, I definitely will do a six o'clock incision if I can. But I try to stay pretty consistent with the technique. And then when you, when you go to the uh, 11 or one o'clock, then you go down into the prostate, you go towards the apex first, and then... So what I will do is I'll park the scope in front of Viru or wherever we're going to decide is going to be our distal margin, right? And I will take the scope, I'll drop my hands, so we hit either 11 or 1 o'clock. And the goal is to go sideways across it, right? So I'm going to be slightly upward, and the idea is to carve that lobe out. And I'll start at the apex of the prostate, and then take the incision all the way forward to the uh, bladder neck. And in terms of, um, so, so let's say if it's a big chunk, or, or how, how do you try not to make a big chunk that they, you, you go right into trouble afterwards? So remember, we have advantages, right? So one is we know the prostate size, right? So if it's a 50-gram prostate, I'm not worried about the pieces being too big. But if it's like a 100, 150-gram prostate, the pieces can get fairly substantial. So what I will do is as I make that first incision, right, and I go all the way lateral and I have that deep groove, I'll drop it probably halfway. Then at that point, I'll take the scope um, out of the groove and I'll look at the leading edge of that tissue. And I'll go ahead and shrink that down at 180 watts just to shrink it so it's to a point where it's under one field of view. 
Once it's down to one field of view, then I'll complete the rest of the procedure. And the way you shrink it down, sideways towards the prostatic urethra, or you go from the prostatic urethra lat- laterally? Yeah, so, so what I'm doing is I'm pointing at the, from the prostatic urethra towards the tissue, and I'm also pointing, I'm also going slightly from down to up. The goal there is that I want to point away from where the urethral orifices are, and I want to point away from where the bureau is as well. And let's talk about if the patient, let's say that, that same day in pre-op says, hey, I want to uh, preserve my ejaculation. Can, can we still... Can, well, hopefully we're not doing that in pre-op. Hopefully we did that uh, during our office visit. But, but let me put you in the spot. Let's say it was pre-op, but you're already booking for the green light. So w- what do you tell the patient? Well, I tell them that the risks of ejaculatory dysfunction, if we do an ejaculatory sparing approach, is around 10 to 12%. And we can always do an ejaculatory sparing approach, but you know there's a downside to it, which is that you're preserving some tissue. So there may be a higher rate of reoccurrence because there's some tissue left behind. And also for patients who have detrusive underactivity, like the weaker bladder, those patients can also have, um, you know, they may not get the same level of symptom relief. And so, so let's go about technique. In terms of ejaculatory preservation, I mean, they call it the, the hood technique. What goes through that? Yeah, so when it comes to the um, hood sparing technique, what we're doing is it's similar to what we already described. The big difference is that what I want to do is really preserve the paracolicular structures and really preserve just the mucosa of the apex of the prostate. So my goal is that when you're at Viru, sitting right at Viru, you want to preserve just enough tissue where it's like the meat, like when you put your scope past it, you don't feel any resistance, but there's still mucosa left behind. So essentially what I'm doing is towards the end of the procedure is when I'm doing the Vero, we're not just vaporizing away at Vero. We actually are in front of Vero and we have the scope turned. So we're almost like vaporizing tissue slightly behind. So there's minimal resistance. And so if a patient has a big prostate extending beyond the Vero, then it's not a candidate for this technique. I mean, you can still do the technique. I just tell them that there's a higher risk that you may not get the same level of benefit. So if a patient has a pediatric Qmax above 100, I think you can get away with probably just doing middle lobe only. Or, you know, you don't need the most extensive resection, but they have higher rates of recurrence. For patients who have weaker bladders, then I tell them that, you know, if you've got tissue going beyond the viru, you may not get the same level of benefit. And you mentioned about benefit, and just for example, that, that surgery from just doing the medium lobe. Is there a situation that you will say, hey, I mean, like, let's say a 90, 95-year-old guy that is in retention, would you just do like a channel technique to open it up so that he can urinate or, or you would do, try to do the same procedure that you do always? I mean, it's a good question. I mean, on one hand, what I'll tell these patients, like some of these patients who are much older, they don't want any anesthesia, right? They don't want to be exposed to spinals or general. So I might even offer them a resume and really inject additional steam to make sure that we get rid of that tissue. Leave them with a catheter for two, three weeks, and a lot of those patients do fairly well. For the ones who can't tolerate general anesthesia, I mean, those patients want to come out of retention, so I want to get out as much tissue as possible, so we're not going to be doing this again. Ultimately, if there's trouble during anesthesia or for whatever reason we have a concern, obviously we we stop at middle lobe or a channel terp, but the goal is to remove as much tissue as we can. And going back to the hood sparing technique, do you delineate? I mean, do, do you use the the quag effect of the laser to to delineate where you want to stop vaporizing? 
I do. We'll start the procedure very similar, right? But the big difference is that when we park the scope to define the distal margin, at that point, I'll be probably, I would say a couple of millimeters in front of the Vero, right? And then at the end of the procedure, that's when I'll use COAG to sort of mark out where I want to preserve the mucosa. And then I'll get in front of it and then remove the adenoma behind it. So you're leaving just like a leaflet there in the in the area, so but without any real tissue behind it. Yeah, because what I found is that if you leave tissue where you can feel it with the scope, I just find that those patients are they don't get as much improvement. Yeah, because I mean that 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 apex is going to be obstructed, so you you you're leaving that part in there. So I feel the same way, but I I probably haven't done any that technique. I just definitely try to always try to preserve Veru per se and remove as much as I can so that I can feel comfortable looking at, at the at the barrel shape uh, prostatic fossa. And anything specific when you when you say okay, so so this patient is gonna be fine. He's gonna be able to urinate or or sometimes because I, I ask you specifically. Sometimes I see when when I'm already think that already finished. I get like a like a hanging roof. So sometimes then you have to start vaporizing the interior aspect of the prostate. Is there a way to prevent that from happening? I think we have to remember we're looking at a three-dimensional structure, right? And I think the lateral lobe sometimes, you know, at the top of it, like sometimes will come together and it looks like we got it when you did the lateral part. And you're right, like when you park your scope all the way back, you look in and all of a sudden you got this area just drooping down. And when that occurs, I think you just don't have a choice but to start vaporizing. But what I try to do is just to make myself super comfortable so we're not hitting like those that vascular structures up there, is I will go up in the corners, right, and then go lateral across it. So therefore, I'm not going higher or deeper than we were before, but I'm just trying to remove that tissue that we sort of outlined between 11 and 1 o'clock. And then when I'm looking at it through the scope, remember we have a 30-degree down lens, so my goal is just to make it sort of uh, even enough. I'm not going to be overly aggressive on that area of the prostate. And that's, that's the thing. I mean, how much do you want to resect of that area uh, without running into trouble? And, and it's specifically those bleeders. If you're very high and it starts bleeding, it's going to be very, very hard for you to stop that bleeding. Yeah, I mean, that's what, that's what I explained to you know residents and colleagues as well, being like, look, all of our instruments were designed for down, like 30 degree down, right? None of our instruments were really designed that well for the, the top part of that, that prostate. So, so my, my goal is to stay out of trouble there if we can. And I guess that that's why I, I ask you the, how much do we actually need when we're resecting the prostate? I mean, and, and really, I guess everybody's different and we just remove as much as we can so that we be comfortable. I try to be very defined in terms of like when we're removing tissue laterally and at the middle lobe. So my goal is one, we flat at bladder neck, right? I want to be wider than the ureteral orifices, right? So that gives you the depth and width, right? But when it comes up top, you're right. There isn't a great way of establishing how much tissue I want to take. But I try to just park the scope, you know, just in front of Vero, look at that area. And I try to create what looks like, like you said, a barrel, right? I want to create a nice open channel. And if I see an area that's dipping down, and remember, it's a 30-degree down lens, that, that area is probably more obstructing than we think. Today I did one on this patient. He had a, at least in, on MRI, was a, he was a 90-year guy. He had a Pirates 5 and, we, uh, and, a, and a Foley. We talk about, hey, well, what are we going to do? So I, I used the green light to, to, to have tissue. So I, I, I did what you mentioned, the 11 and 1 technique, push those media to those lateral lobes to, to, the, to the bladder, remove them, 
But then the prostate was very, very tall and it was flush with the trigon. So really there wasn't that much tissue there. And even though it was 150, the inner part was not that big. So, I mean, he, he urinated afterwards. I mean, or at least I, I pressed the bladder and it, it was flowing. But sometimes with those tall prostates, you know, I mean, I, I don't feel that much comfortable because you, you still, I'm mean, there at the burrow. I, I know it's open right now because I don't see the lateral lobes, but the, the, the medium part of the prostate is still intact. So I, I burn it just to feel that I was doing something about for that patient. No, it's true. I mean, I think some of the really tall prostates, I mean, you look in and you're like, did I get everything that I could? And, and I do think that does become a bit of a challenge. And the thing is, the more you keep working on that anterior portion of the prostate, the more you're like, if I hit one bleeder, right, it's going to take me, you know, X amount of minutes to take care of it. And did I even do the patient a service after after all that? So so I agree. I think I think to some degree, especially for those older patients, like sometimes uh, you need to go with good enough. I mean, like you mentioned, so in those patients, I, I, on my mind, I think, hey, should I have done another uh, technology or, or something else? But really, I don't think in those those prostate, I don't think anything else will really help those patients. I mean, other than prostatectomy. I agree, but those older patients here, they're not the best candidate. So you do the surgery. What's next? Do you keep a catheter overnight? What do you do? Almost all patients have a catheter overnight. I mean, occasionally there'll be a patient who really wants a catheter out the same day. We might do a trial void then, but I would say 95% of the time I want the catheter overnight. Some patients that want to stay in the hospital, I keep them overnight. Most patients will go home with the catheter, come to my office in the following morning. We do a trial void then. And usually, which ones are stay overnight? The the big prostates or big prostates, anticoagulated. You know, patients with a uh, history of recurrent prostatitis, recurrent UTIs. If there's a reason to be concerned about the patient, so it's mainly just for observation. So you go and, and see the next patient in the in I mean in the in the ward. I mean, if that if you have chosen to discharge the patient that same day of the surgery, do you think the patient will have done good? Yeah, and I mean, I think for the most part, I think. Uh, the same day, the same day discharge. I think that's one of the biggest advantages of I think the lasers. That I mean, at the end of these procedures, a lot of times the urine is really quite clear. Um, you know what I find is uh, when it comes to green light, it's you know sometimes when you're doing the case, your visualization it doesn't take a lot of blood to obscure visualization. But I'm always surprised at how clear the outflow is. Right? I find with like chirps uh, or aquablation, sometimes I mean it can be fairly red at the end. And, you know, sometimes you're putting on traction, you're doing other things to sort of clear that. But I find for green light, for the most part, you don't really need much in terms of traction or CBI. No, exactly. I mean, it has to be a very, very big prostate, somebody that bled differently that I would, that I would keep the patient in admitted. But I would say 90%, 95%, they, they, they go home with a catheter and then they, the next day they come to the office. Or patients that they don't have transportation, they don't want to go come back the next day, I will keep those overnight. But... Yeah, usually the next day, I, mean, I don't leave them on irrigation that night. And they do good. They do good. So in terms of post-op, what medication do you give the patient? If a patient has a history of recurrent infections, that patient may have a couple of days of antibiotics. But most patients will just get preoperative antibiotics and discharge with some type of analgesic, usually pyridium. I give an NSAID, pyridium, stool softener. So, so I tell patients about NSAIDs, we usually don't prescribe them because I find that insurances don't cover it that well. It's cheaper to just buy a bottle of Advil. Ah, yeah, definitely. So, Bibi Lau, any other thing that you might add? 
No, I, th- I think you covered the the area really well. I think what, one thing that I've always been curious about, it's interesting you do the same test, which is, it's funny, I call it, I tell the residents, it's a test that doesn't matter, which is, you know, at the end of a case, you fill up the bladder, right? And you press down on the belly and then you see the stream. And then residents are like, wait, is he incontinent? I'm like, no, 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 he's incontinent. <laughs> and then, you know, there's some patients that get this amazing flow and those patients do really well. There's some patients who get very little flow and they still do really well. And it's not really predictive, but it definitely makes us feel better. It makes us feel better, yeah. And, and, and like you said, sometimes that patient that has not a good flow, you, you get stressed. I mean, should I have continued to, to resect more or something? Then, But yeah, I mean, they, they do good. But but I do think like that that's a very interesting, like, how do we know we took enough? I do think that that's a question that sometimes, you know, we, we don't have great answers for. And you get feedback from, from like, sometimes where people are observing cases, be like, hey, aren't you done? I'm like... No, 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 I still see a little bit there, a little bit there, right? And it's a good question. When are we done? Uh, usually, so sometimes a rep comes to the, to see me do it and they say, yeah, you're taking a lot. Like, yeah, well, I mean, the patient's already here. But yeah, that's the only th- feedback that I get and it's usually from the rep. So Bilal, thank you for being in back table. I really enjoyed this conversation. I, I'll probably say that green lights most of the what I do for BPA, so it was good for me. Well, thank you for including me. Thank you for inviting me and I enjoyed the conversation as well. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, DM us at underscore Backtable on Instagram, LinkedIn, or Twitter. Backtable is hosted by Aditya Bagrodia and Jose Silva. Our audio team is led by Kieran Gannon, with support from Josh McWhorter, Aaron Bowles, Nick Shellcross. And Ness Smith Savadoff. Design and digital marketing led by Brian Schmitz. With support from Devante Delbrun. Social media and PR by Chi Ding. Administrative support provided by Jimmy Lee Thanks again for listening and see you next week.